If you'd open your Bibles to the book of Philippians, chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verse 20 and 21 this morning, but in order to understand the context of that verse, I want to go back to verse 17 and read the entire paragraph. We're sort of breaking this marvelous paragraph into three different messages so we can kind of get the full benefit out of it. So we'll begin reading in chapter 3 and verse 17, going all the way through chapter 4, verse 1. We'll look at 20 and 21 this morning. And let's remember as we read, as we do every week, this is God's word. This is, is God's scepter, as it has been called, by which he rules his world, by which he calls his people, by which he raises the spiritually dead, by which he revives spiritually slumbering hearts, by which he opens eyes, by which he renews the lethargic, by which he awakens the sluggish. This is God's word. Let's read it with that anticipation this morning. Philippians three seventeen. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Chapter 4, 1, which we'll cover next week. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand Firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. May the Lord bless and anoint the preaching of his word. Perhaps you've heard, probably many of you have heard the well-known Old Testament Bible story of three young Jewish men who were taken captive out of the land of Israel to the court of the king of Babylon. Their exile was going relatively well. They had even been promoted and favored in some way by the king. Until one day when that king set up a statue dedicated to himself and required all of his officials and nobles to bow down and worship it. The three young Jewish men refused. They would not bow down and worship this false god. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, the mighty Babylon at the time, was outraged. And he ordered that these three defiant young men be thrown into a fiery furnace as a capital punishment, a gruesome capital punishment, to prove his supremacy over his domain. You know the story. A fourth figure appears with them in the flames, and they are unharmed. One of the marvelous miracles of the Old Testament. They are unharmed, even unsinged, and they're ordered to come out, and they're examined, not a, not a spot on them. 
And the king is forced to acknowledge the supremacy of their God. I think those young men, in the midst of their exile, in the midst of their location in a foreign king, in the court of a foreign kingdom, facing the call to worship a false god, understood the principle of Philippians 3, 20 and 21. They understood that they had a higher citizenship. They had a higher kingdom and a greater king that they owed their ultimate allegiance to. They had an identity that transcended the identity of a servant in the court of King Nebuchadnezzar. They had a, a king that was higher than that king. They had a fear that was greater than the fear of death. They had a kingdom that was more important than the greatest empire on earth. They understood Philippians, the point of Philippians 3, 20 and 21. And that's the point that Paul is trying to infuse into this Philippian church. Many, many hundreds of years later, and it's the same point that God, by re-speaking his word, wants to infuse into your heart this morning. It's the same faith that he wants to infuse That there is an ultimate kingdom. There is an ultimate king. And that king holds our allegiance if we belong to him. That kingdom is the focus of our hearts. It's It's the longing that we have. It transcends every other fear and every other loyalty. I think the point of this passage, if I, could, if I could break it into a sentence, it would be the kingdom of Christ must direct our lives while we wait eagerly for his return. The kingdom of Christ must direct our lives while we wait eagerly for his return. That's the point of this transition. Paul has been warning the Philippian church about enemies of the gospel who live according to their own appetites and cravings and live as though this earth is all that matters. And he reminds them that they have a different country, a higher country, a better kingdom, and a coming king. To motivate them to walk in a different way than those around them who walk contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he breaks this into two uneven uh, reminders. The first is the kingdom we belong to, and the second is the king we are waiting for. He first reminds them of the kingdom, and then he talks about the king. The kingdom we belong to and the king we are waiting for. Let's dive in and try to feel what Paul is urging upon them uh, this morning. First, the kingdom we belong to. Notice this phrase, our citizenship is in heaven. It's probably the case that that word but there at the beginning would be better translated for. It's a motivating word. Paul is hearkening back to his mandate to follow his example. You might think him saying for our citizenship is in heaven. But he is creating a contrast between those who walk according to the cravings of this world and those who walk according to the desires and priorities of the kingdom of God. Our citizenship is in heaven. That word citizenship. Uh, is a, a, a tricky word to translate. Probably we might say something like commonwealth or kingdom. The idea is of a, an, an entity, a domain to which we belong. The concept here is that we have a belonging to a kingdom. We belong to a domain. You want to notice the present tense of that phrase. One of the ways you can break up this passage is Paul's transition from present tense 
to future tense. He says, our citizenship, our commonwealth, our kingdom is in heaven. It is in heaven right now. So this belonging to a heavenly kingdom is something that is presently true of every Christian. It is true right now. You belong to the kingdom of heaven if you believe in Jesus. You belong to it. You are a citizen of that kingdom. That is your true and ultimate country. That is the domain that has your ultimate allegiance. You are, if you are a Christian, a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. He's trying to impress this upon them because that kingdom is largely invisible. What is visible to the Philippian church is the Roman Empire and its vast power and resources and the exaltation of Caesar Augustus, named because of his august uh, reputation among his people. He was called Lord and Savior. He was the supreme power of the age. He was the new king demanding absolute loyalty and recognition. And not only that, they were surrounded by a, a, a panoply of false gods who were worshipped and exalted by the culture. He's saying, no, you, you belong to a heavenly kingdom. This is the kingdom that you belong to. We have been made heavenly citizens. Paul's going to get to the coming nature of this kingdom, but he wants this identity to be pressed into the church in Philippi, and we should want this identity to be pressed into our hearts this morning. How tightly do we hold on to this kingdom identity? That you are citizens of the heavenly kingdom. How completely have we remembered the renunciation of our former sovereignty and the complete allegiance that we have to this new kingdom? I remember uh, watching an interview with a, a British celebrity who had recently become an American citizen. She had gone through the whole process, and, and she was describing this process, and she described a moment uh, in the process where she was uh, required to renounce her allegiance to her former sovereign. And she mentioned this as being challenging for her because she had no animosity towards her former sovereign. She loved that sovereign, uh, and perhaps she hadn't been anticipating, I don't know, uh, the transfer of sovereignty as part of this process. She might have been thinking of it as a, a political change or a geographical change or uh, maybe even tax benefits. I, I don't know what motivated her. But whatever the cause, she was struck by the need and the requirement of renouncing her ultimate allegiance to that sovereignty and transferring it to her new country. You know, I, I think sometimes we need the reminder that that is what happened when we were converted. That transfer of sovereignty has taken place for every Christian. We have been transferred. We renounced by the grace of God the sovereignty that we were under, the sovereignty of the God of this age, the powers of this age, the living for this age. We renounced that allegiance and we came under the headship of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. So if you're a Christian, you are a, a willing subject, a willing servant of the kingdom of Jesus. That's the nature of your Christianity. Christianity is not merely future-oriented. It is future-oriented, but it also has a present component. So, Christian, right now, if you look in the mirror, staring back at you is a subject of the kingdom of heaven. 
with all of the responsibilities and privileges and honors and callings that go with that citizenship. Our citizenship is in heaven, Paul says. And he wants us to hear that loud and clear. The kingdom we belong to makes all the difference in how we make decisions when we are facing the gods of this age. Those three young men may have had to face a powerful Babylonian monarch, but their allegiance, their true identity, was to the kingdom of God. We face less dramatic but similar decisions every day. We may be facing the God of self-indulgence, but we must remember we belong to the kingdom of Christ, whether it's food or drugs or alcohol or lust. The invitation to bow to that false God must be rejected because we belong to the kingdom of Christ. And he must hold sway over our affections, over our obedience. We, we may be facing the demanding call of the God of self-identity. Let me, let me remind you that this God is prevalent and powerful in all age. The God of self-identity. This God says, I have the right to identify myself however I want. I have the right to define myself any way I want. I have the right to discover new ways that I like to define myself any way I want. That is a false God. There is only one God who can tell you who you are, and that God is not you. There is only one God who can tell you who you were made to be, and that God is not you. You are not allowed, and I am not allowed to look at myself from the outside and declare, this is who you shall be, only God can do that. It is no different than those three young men facing Nebuchadnezzar, demanding that they bow, except in this case, the statue is made in our own image. And yet those who belong to the kingdom of Christ say, no, I am a citizen of heaven. I receive my identity from him. At every moment of our lives, we should remember we belong to the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom that extends from heaven to earth, the kingdom in which angels never cease to worship the Lord as the almighty creator, worthy of all honor and glory and power and praise, the kingdom in which countless martyrs have gone before us, bearing witness even to death that they belong to a better country, a heavenly one. This is the kingdom of Peter and Paul and Daniel and Isaiah and David and William Tyndale and Ridley and Latimer and Whitfield and Spurgeon and Owen. This is the kingdom of modern day martyrs who declare you may do what you want with our bodies. We belong to a heavenly kingdom. What this must do is confront the tendency to think we can live simultaneously with two allegiances, two ultimate allegiances, one to fit in to the culture of this age and the other to remain in the kingdom of Christ. Now, Paul is not a super spiritualist. He's not recommending living in a cave somewhere or wandering off in the woods and uh, eating raw bear meat. He, he's, he's not recommending some kind of a political, a citizenship kind of Christianity. He is saying there is a 
an ultimate, a transcendent allegiance. Yes, we are exiles. Yes, we should do good to the country and the commonwealth in which we physically reside. But that responsibility is always underneath our responsibility to our heavenly king. Our calling to be citizens of the heavenly kingdom. We only have one ultimate sovereignty, and that is the kingdom of Christ. It should make all the difference in whether we are willing to stand up for the word of our king or whether we will crumble to the popular creeds of our culture. When culture and the kingdom of Christ collide, we have already made the choice of which kingdom we will belong to. If we must face further exile because we belong to the kingdom of Christ, we say, so be it, I am already exiled, you can't exile me any further. We are not meant to be a people with competing loyalties, trying to reach a balanced life between worldly wisdom and spiritual mindedness. Our heart divided between a good standing in this worldly kingdom and our faithfulness to our heavenly kingdom. Remember, we are citizens of the heavenly kingdom. We can do good. We can pursue the common good. We can seek to be all things to all men, humble ourselves in common ways to serve those around us, whether they are followers of Christ or not. We can be good engineers and good politicians and good doctors and good neighbors. Yes, we can, but our citizenship... Our highest identity is in the kingdom of Christ. And when that allegiance is threatened, the decision was made when we said yes to his calling of grace and mercy. And the most important part of that kingdom, of course, is the king. God does not intend his people to live based only on a, a mythical religion or a, a moralism that controls your life but makes no difference to your future. Look, Christianity, our, our following of God is not merely a type of life. It's not something where we, we believe in this sort of mythical God who's out there in a kind of spiritual kingdom because we like the lifestyle better. No, it anticipates a real historical event in the future. And frankly, in our day and age, this forward type of expectation is going to increasingly make us look insane to this culture. Because anything that hasn't happened yet seems ridiculous to count on. But Christians have decided to base their life on an event that hasn't happened yet. Let me see if I can describe the Christianity in as insane a terms as it's going to come across to our culture right now and increasingly in the coming years. We believe in a man who died and then rose from the dead and drifted up through the sky into heaven. We believe that that individual is presently ruling over every physical activity in creation. He actually controls the scientific process that you study every eighth grade. He controls all of those things. And one day, he's actually going to come back. He's going to turn our physical bodies, which are broken, into invulnerable and immortal bodies. And he's going to take us with him into a new kingdom, a new heaven and a new earth. And we've based our entire life and every decision on that belief. Listen, you just described an insane person to this common culture. 
we have to get used to the idea that following the Lord Jesus is going to sound insane. Because if you don't believe in Jesus, it is insane. The Christian life is insane if you don't believe in a coming king. It's absurd. It's ridiculous. It makes no rational sense to do what the Bible calls you to do if you don't believe in a coming king. Paul himself would say, if, if Jesus wasn't risen from the dead, and if we have no confidence in the future, then why wouldn't we eat, drink, be merry, and then die? It all focuses on the coming king, which is why Paul's second point is the king we are waiting for. The kingdom we belong to and the king we are waiting for. From it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. From it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And every Christian should love that word, the savior, because it should remind us of what he saved us from, that he saved us from the wrath of God, that he saved us from condemnation in the future because of our sins, that he saved us from the hopeless bondage we were in to our lusts and our preferences and our cravings that were in defiance of God. He saved us by dying for us on the cross. This is the mighty Savior who conquered by dying. This is the Savior unlike any human Savior because he didn't just save us from human dilemmas. He saved us from an eternal dilemma. This is the Savior we worship. The crucified one who suffered for us on the cross and rose again. This is the Savior we are waiting for. So even if we can see in our lives failures of citizenship, failures of making our heavenly identity our chief priority, good news, the king we follow has already paid for our sins. The king we follow has mercy on his unfaithful and imperfect subjects. The king we follow, follow suffered for his subjects to guarantee their future in his kingdom. From it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul is being very intentional. What comes to our mind, because we, we read the scriptures and we know the accent on the death and resurrection of Christ, is that salvation uh, from our eternal danger. But what maybe also would have come to the Philippians' mind is that Paul is contrasting Jesus and Caesar. Because these two terms, Lord and Savior, were applied in that day to Caesar. And so he is intentionally saying, Here's the Lord and Savior we wait for, Jesus Christ. Let me read what one commentator, uh, G. Walter Hansen, says about this intentional contrast. He says this, In the Roman Empire, Caesar Augustus was acclaimed to be, quote, the Savior of the world, because he restored order and peace not only in Italy, but also throughout the provinces and regions under his sovereign rule. Paul used, Paul's use of the term Savior in his letter to Christians in Roman Philippi sharply opposes Jesus Christ as Lord to their imperial Savior. Paul redirects the focus of his readers from the Savior in Rome, Caesar Augustus, to the Savior in heaven, Jesus Christ the Lord. In contrast to the enemies of the cross who set their minds on earthly powers, the Christians in Philippi are called to focus their trust and hope in the Lord and Savior above all 
earthly powers. The enemies of the cross followed the natural inclination of residents in Philippi to look to the emperor in Rome to exert his sovereign power to solve their problems, satisfy their appetites, rescue them from trouble, and protect them from danger. But the Christian who followed the example of Paul looked to Jesus Christ to be their Lord and Savior. Such a change of allegiance would inevitably cause them to participate in the sufferings of Christ. Now, I could read that about the Christians in Philippi, and I can easily transfer names and times and see how that's present even in the church, let alone the culture today. The craving for a human, regular, mere mortal savior. The, the craving for someone who can make my life better. Someone who can improve my physical condition or at least guarantee that it won't get worse. That is what this culture is prone to look to. Human, regular saviors in this age. What Paul is saying is that we are looking to someone much better. We are looking to the supreme, sovereign Lord and Savior. That's who we're waiting for. Someone infinitely better. Imagine this lowly Christian uh, in Philippi thinking and finding out there is a superior sovereign to Caesar Augustus. I mean, th that would have blown their mind. There is someone more majestic, more powerful, and with greater promises than Caesar Augustus. Caesar can deal with the barbarians temporarily. Uh, Jesus can deal with the wrath of God. Caesar can help pave the roads. Uh, roads. Jesus can get you to heaven. Caesar can help accommodate the, the bureaucracy. Uh, Jesus can help you accommodate your fellowship with angels. That there is a, a supreme leader and ruler and savior that is far superior than any earthly messiah. Paul's use of the word Savior is very intentional. He wants to redirect their focus. Get your eyes off human salvation and get your eyes on Jesus. Get your eyes on the Savior. And listen, I don't care if you've been a Christian 50 years or five minutes. You need a greater focus on the coming king. We need a greater focus on the coming king. Our lives are to be spent anticipating his return. Our lives are be directed in such a way that we are eagerly waiting his return. Our, our lives are longing for his return. Our actions, our decisions, our priorities, our sacrifices, our suffering is all in anticipation of his return. And just to clarify the glory of that return, Paul makes two observations about what he will do when he returns. First, he says, he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Just to clarify how much superior Jesus was to Caesar, he just makes this simple point. He says, look, you know what Jesus is going to do? He's going to take your lowly body, vulnerable and weak, vulnerable to cancers and diseases and malaria and heart attacks and brain aneurysms. He's going to take that lowly, weak, vulnerable body riddled by the consequences of sin in this age. You know what he's going to do? He's going to make it like his glorious body, invulnerable, renewed perpetually by the Holy Spirit, and immortal such that it can never face decay or death. You can almost see the comparison. 
What can Caesar do compared to that? Would you like to look forward to somebody who might extend your earthly life by a few years or by a savior who can make your life eternal? Would you focus most of your attention on an earthly savior who can ex maybe extend the borders of your, your earthly domain by a few yards or one who can give you an inheritance in heaven? He will transform your lowly bodies. This is good news to every Christian who is very aware of physical suffering, whether because of persecution in the two-thirds world or maybe in our country at some point, or perhaps, perhaps just regular physical suffering through disease and weakness, hips that break and joints that ache and backs that are pained and headaches that come and cancer and difficulties there's some of you that are suffering that way right now listen you have a savior who is going to change your body to be like his your body so just think of the last physical limitation you faced did something ache this morning did you get a bad doctor's report this week is there some uncertainty because everyone in your family dies early is, is there some concern is is there is there someone in this church and i know there are people who face debilitating physical limitations listen jesus christ knows those limitations and he has promised when he returns to take your lowly body and make it like his own If you have a child that has suffered for years with a brutal disease and you've watched them believe in Jesus through the midst of their suffering, you know what you can hand to them? Jesus is going to make your body new. If you talk to a, an, an aging parent who's facing the debilitation of their disease, and you're trying to appeal to them, listen, there is one who can make your body new. When you get bad news, whether it's in your 50s or it's in your teenage years, something's wrong with your body. Jesus can make your body new. Heaven is, is not meant to be described as this bodiless experience, this kind of weird existence that we can't really relate to. No, 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 he intends to make our body new and renewed and glorious like his so that we can function in robust service to him in heaven. This is the king we are waiting for. And the power that he will use to do that is the same power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Look at this final phrase. The same power that he, he will operate on our body to renew it and transform it is the same power that allows him to subject all things to himself. That is currently true by faith and cosmically and will be ultimately true by sight and politically. Let me, let me explain what I mean. Jesus is saying here, and Paul is saying about him, that the same one who can transform your, your cancel-riddled or uh, aching body is, is able also to subject every power, every dominion to himself. He's already called him Lord and Savior. Now he's saying Caesar himself will be subjected to the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, to this little colony of Christians in Philippi, surrounded by evidence of Roman dominance and cultural <laughs> atrocities, 
This is a reminder. Look, you have a king that is coming that will have absolute dominion over every power on this age. This is also a warning to anyone who continues to defy this king. Let, let, me, let me speak to you. If you're here and, and you're a friend, uh, but you're not a believer in Jesus as far as you know, let me speak as graciously and as earnestly as I can to you. Listen, you can choose to not believe the Bible if you want to. But what the Bible says is that God will rule over every human being. And those who defy him will face his judgment. And Jesus will not come to restore their bodies, but to banish their bodies into everlasting torment. There could not be a more fearful future to anticipate than to know that the one who is eager to restore the bodies of his people will banish those who have defied him into the judgment reserved for those who have rejected what his word says. God is patient, but there will be a day when his patience will come to an end. You've never met a more patient God than Jesus Christ. But that patience has an ending date and we don't know when that date is, but we know it will come a point when the time that people had to claim his merciful offer of salvation will come to an end. And after that, there will only be a fearful hope of judgment. So if you're here and you're not a believer, look, we don't want to be nice to you that it's okay to live a nice moral life and just not hurt your neighbors too often and try not to cheat on your taxes. No, no. No, either you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior or you reject him as a God. There is no middle option. There will come a day where he will either be the shepherd tending to his weak people or he will be the judge banishing the defiant ones of this earth. And Christians, we also need to keep our eyes fixed on the ultimate power of the universe. The ultimate power is not in any office, He's not sitting on any throne. There's no election to determine the ultimate one who will subject all things to himself. There's no candidates for this role. There's no debating a better policy for this role. There is only one absolutely supreme authority who will subject all things to himself. And those who love him will rejoice when he restores them and renews them. And those who hate him will be crushed under his This is the full message of the Bible. Jesus Christ the Lord is coming. He offers salvation to all who will claim him as Savior and King. He offers devastation to all who reject him. And for his people, this is the directing identity for every decision we make. The kingdom and the coming king. The kingdom we belong to and the king we are longing for. Martin Luther said, I have two days on my calendar, this day and that day. There is a, a forward-looking mentality of every Christian. It should shape us when we budget and when we decide our hospitality calendar and when we decide whether or not to reach out to that neighbor and how to instruct our child. It's a, it's a forward, eternity-looking perspective of Jesus coming back. It should affect us when we come to afflictions and suffering and difficulty because what they ultimately do is cause us to hurry on towards heaven. 
Thomas Watson put this well. He said, afflictions quicken our pace on the way to heaven. It is with us as with children sent on an errand. If they meet with apples or flowers, by the way, they linger and are in no great hurry to get home. But if anything frightens them, then they run with all the speed they can to their father's house. So in prosperity, we gather the apples and flowers and do not give much thought to heaven. But if troubles begin to arise, the times grow frightful, then, then we make more haste to heaven. Listen, don't be afraid if troubles come. The culture darkens. The thunder of anti-Christian mentality booms. Don't be fearful. We await a Savior who will break open the sky and who will take us to himself. And if those afflictions, whether they be providential pain and suffering and sickness or accusations and persecutions by our culture, if those afflictions cause us to hurry on towards that day in our own hearts and souls, so much the better. So much the better. Because we're meant every day to be living with our eye on that coming king. We're meant to have the kingdom of Christ directing us in our decisions of time and money and effort and priorities and location and geography and pursuit and friendships and, and passions. All that make us who we are should be shaped by the coming kingdom and our king. As Paul says in the next verse, therefore... My brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Seek after him. Do not stand with one foot in this kingdom and one foot in the future kingdom. Run the race towards heaven. Pursue the coming king. Make your lives built on him, the crucified and risen one who has provided for and will renew his people, who will subject every evil voice to himself, every throne and office under his feet, and he will be exalted. This should define our perspective. When we wake up in the morning with a to-do list longer than we can accomplish, and we go to bed at night aware we didn't get even as much done as we thought we should have, when we're aware of our sinfulness that requires his forgiveness, our suffering that requires requires his comfort, our children that need his salvation, and our neighbors that need his witness. We can all pursue those tasks with our eye on the coming king. We can be like those young men on that plane. Those young men that we will meet one day. That we will join one day, we can stand shoulder to shoulder with them through the centuries and say, we will not worship your gods. Our God whom we worship is able to rescue us from your furnace, but even if he does not, we will not bow to your gods. And we can add, because Jesus Christ is our king and we belong to him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for giving us an eternal perspective. We thank you for, Lord, this incredible gift that we have of knowing 
that the best for us is in our future. Lord, life is short. Life is very short. Limited number of heartbeats, limited number of breaths, limited days of suffering, limited days of perseverance, endless days of enjoying you. Lord Jesus, keep our eyes fixed on you and your kingdom. And in the time that we have, help us to represent you well. In Jesus' name.